Welcome to the Conservation Tribe. I'm your host, Blaine Edwards, aka Earth Offline. And in today's episode, we are talking about orangutans. And we'll be doing this with the help of today's guest, Daya. So, Daya, thank you for coming on the show and welcome to the Conservation Tribe. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to talk about orangutans. Usually, people tell me that I'm talking about them too much. So, to have this little bit now, you don't know what you're getting yourself. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. Okay, so how about you tell the world about who you are and what you do? Okay, so I am Hodea. I'm from the UK. I'm 24, uh, a zoologist and now wildlife filmmaker. And it's one of those things which, uh, when people ask what do you do right now, having just finished up this master's in wildlife filmmaking, it's kind of all a bit over the place. You know, got these passions in one place and interests in another, but I would say that generally speaking, I'm an environmental and orangutan advocate. Environmental <laughs> and orangutan advocate. I like that. that I mean, yeah. I, I, basically, yeah. I mean, it's just, there's just combining a lot of things right now. So I feel like that's the most general way. But I mean, there's a few other things that I do. So there's a... um organization based actually in um, Australia called Orangutan Alliance okay. and I'm the UK correspondent for them mm-hmm. so probably a better correspondent if I can actually say the word but <laughs> um, hey, it's a hard word to say <laughs> don't be so hard on yourself yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> but no at the moment focusing more on film linked to orangutans okay so you mentioned that you did your master's in wildlife filmmaking yeah yeah okay that's interesting yeah it was it was one of those things that um i very much came from a science background having studied zoology and i'm sure i can talk about this later but the route i got into to then going and working and living with orangutans the year after um it got to a point where i definitely wanted to go and do a master's to really focus more specifically on primates and orangutans when it comes to zoology but what I couldn't decide at that moment was whether I wanted to pursue something that was like a master's that's research-based or one that was more um, well, wildlife filmmaking. Mm-hmm. And I th- the thing that really drew me to that, which then ended up being the reason that I pursued that way, was that um, it wonderfully weaves together art and science. I think film, particularly wildlife and conservation filmmaking, is a great tool for communicating sometimes complex, sometimes quite upsetting, sometimes often crucial information and research that everyone really needs to know about because it impacts everybody's lives. Mm -hmm. But sometimes that information is lost or people feel that information is not relevant to them or they can't relate to it when it's just in a journal. Mm -hmm. So film is a wonderful way to creatively express those things and kind of well, it's storytelling at the end of the day, and we communicate the way that we cooperate, everything, the way that we process information always comes back to storytelling. So it's a powerful tool and one that I've loved to, I've loved getting to understand more and um, being involved with over the last few years. Mm-hmm. So have you finished your master's degree with that, with wildlife? Yeah. yeah, I finished that at the end of last year, and then now I'm focusing more on a orangutan film it's interesting you say um the intersection of art and conservation because 
in my two episodes ago. Yeah, two episodes ago. I did an episode with Pudja, who's a multimedia artist, and her her work is heavily linked with um, conservation, and it's all about you know storytelling and and how important that is. And through her medium, she uses film, but she also uses painting, illustration. She uses the whole lot, really. Um, but using those mediums to convey a meaningful scientific message. And it's all well and good doing all the research, but if you can't communicate that research in a way that people can are receptive to or want to consume even, then it's it's not it's obviously not pointless, but it's it doesn't have the the potential impact that it could have if it was presented in a way through film or yeah, I think it's if, if that makes sense. It's really important the creative space and communicating a message is really important but it comes with a certain responsibility i i know from my experience personally that i've lived out in borneo i've seen the impacts of deforestation of palm oil i've been able to encounter these incredible species that obviously then i had a long sort of um, admiration for this species and the the habitat in the first place but when you're able to experience something you're definitely going to care. Like I can't imagine that anyone who has encountered an orangutan or has been in those forests mm. with the layers of sound and the tea-coloured water can't care about it. But it's ridiculous to expect that. I mean, I had a, I had a huge privilege that I was able to do that, and thus I feel I have a responsibility in communicating what is going on mm-hmm. um, because it does impact every single one of us and. The main thing that I find, um, we can talk about it a bit later on, but I work also as a STEM ambassador. So uh, science, technology, engineering and mathematics mm-hmm. are the subjects that are hugely underrepresented. Um, as the years in schools go on, there seems to be a greater drop of people who pursue them for studying, but then also in careers or even just having an interest in those subjects. And they're ones that are crucial for conservation. and um, positive change to the climate and things. And um, something that I feel really strongly is that science should never, ever, ever feel like it's just for scientists. So when people are like, oh, but I'm not a scientist, it's not really. No, that's wrong. Science is part of every single person's daily life. It's, and it's, just, it's, the, it's nature. That's, that's what yeah. it is. It's yeah. the attempt to describe the natural world. Intriguing and and when those things happen, I feel like you get people to care. And when people care, then that's when you get behavior changes and attitude changes. Totally agree. You need you need them to care. You need them. You know, you protect what you love. The part that you mentioned about the experiences part, I, f- I f- found really interesting. The idea that if you actually see an orangutan or you know any animal in the wild, it's very difficult once you have that experience not to have some kind of emotional connection with that animal. Mm-hmm. So what are your thoughts on, I'm kind of veering off script a bit, um, so fine. but kind of ecotourism and volunteering, these experiences where you're right there in the real world, the tangible world. What are your thoughts on that? Like I'm a big believer in uh, ecotourism and the 
potential benefit that it could have for conservation moving forward because you can you can get that uh that meaningful uh, experience with an animal um, mm-hmm. that could then inspire you to care about it and ultimately want to protect it whereas if you didn't have that experience let's say you just were watching a, a film or reading about it it misses that it misses that extra factor because your your disconnect yeah. is still somewhat from it. I think my opinion on that is one that in an ideal world, I don't think ecotourism would be the solution. In an ideal mm-hmm. world, we have to fill that industry. I've seen firsthand the impacts of when uh, orangutans being so closely related to humans have um, caught um like common colds yeah. ones that or you know stomach bugs and it's sometimes been fatal mm-hmm. so i think there's a really fine line i think education through ecotourism is crucial i think ecotourism as opposed to land being used for uh you know like land use change and deforestation if it's a way to maintain the the habitat that's there as you said to inspire people to connect people to what's there so in turn that they in turn they're going to care and want to do what they can mm-hmm. that is a positive but i think what has to be implemented is respect for the animal at a, a distance at a distance 100 um, percent. because when those when that doesn't happen um the, i mean i i was out working in Borneo for uh, almost nine months. And before I did that, I had to have a rigorous quarantine period. I had to have t- tests for all these different, um, a TB test or various tests. And I think that um, had that not happened, it wouldn't have been appropriate because, as this I said, so easy to swap over, um, you know, illnesses, which could be devastating so i think if a distance is maintained um then then ecotourism is good but i do also think that some forms of storytelling can be so powerful that sometimes they do give you that connection so for example there's a documentary called my life as a turkey and i always use this one as an example because <laughs> it follows the story of a man who hand rears these turkeys up until they're adults yeah. <laughs> and you think before oh, it's gonna be quite sweet maybe quite funny by the end of this film you are wholly connected to these turkeys and mm-hmm. you know you're crying because it's not really that they're turkeys and you have to love a turkey it's more that what those turkeys represent when i watch it i think of when you know my brother went to university and that sense of loss or when someone else watches it they might think of when they left for six months to go traveling or when their daughter left or that feeling of that one time where does a and with each person it creates a personal attachment like a, a way that they can relate to that story not that it's to do with turkey but that feeling internally on a personal level which i do think sticks with you mm-hmm. and that's so powerful about when you encounter these animals firsthand is that you've got a tangible sort of connection there and then but with some use of storytelling i do think it can have that that. that same effect yeah maybe Mm. in a different form but Mm. some power with it as well 
totally. Um, and I think, yeah, it's, it's more important than ever now um, telling a story that has value to the rest of the world as well. Um, there's a lot of, through social media, um, we're just bombarded with all this information and stories, I guess, or more or less just information of things that, you know, don't have a lot of substance to it. And I think that is the challenge of people like yourself and creatives that are involved in conservation or the environment or human rights and all those kind of fields um, to kind of break through that noise through the power of storytelling to tell a story that's worth hearing. Yeah. Um, so let's rewind a bit to orangutan conservation and kind of was there a moment that inspired you to was there a moment where you're like this is what I want to do I want to dedicate my life to conservation and orangutans was there a moment or was it kind of like a gradual transition so I think there were probably two things that um, really have stuck with me one that's been sort of a moment and another was just a sequence of events that have happened over the years. So the first was, um, I mean, I've loved orangutans as ever since I was about six or something, but there was a particular moment when I was younger where I heard the story of, though the pioneering woman was Brute Galdegas with orangutans, um, the other trimate, Jane Goodall, there was a story of when she was observing some orangutans in the wild and the story went that there was an adult female up in a tree and she misjudged her weight, which is quite rare, um, and the tree couldn't support her weight and crashed down, and she fell from quite some height down to the ground. Um, and the female proceeded to pick up that branch, climb up, and many other animals at this point would show aggression, sort of frustration or emotions similar to those human emotions. But instead, she proceeded to try and attach the branch back onto the tree. Wow. And but that just sums up orangutans so well. They're so in harmony with their environment. They're so generally so calm. I mean, in the, the Dayak um, indigenous people of um, Kalimantan, which is Indonesian Borneo, were totally, um, you know, they believe that orangutans can speak. They can talk. They can understand, but they choose not to because fear of being enslaved or having to be put to work. And, I mean, I understand totally, us humans, or they. Yeah, that, they, they, um, they. You know, it's sort of wide agreed, at least in myths, anyway, that orangutans had the ability to talk, but they chose not to. And even their name, um, orangutan in Malay, means person of the forest. And mm. I can totally see that. And the fact that they're just so in harmony, so um, at peace in their surroundings, is. Is something that really drew me to them. And the second thing is um, for, you know, ever since I was about 12, I've been working with children, whether that's teaching or volunteering or just having many younger siblings or anything like that. And there, this sort of innate curiosity of a child uh, has been my biggest inspiration because at some point when we grow up, that curiosity goes. And I think that's the biggest loss and the biggest thing that we, one of the biggest things that we're missing out on with conservation. Because if you don't have curiosity, it's very hard to be 
interested in the I don't know I feel like curiosity is so key when thinking about the world around us asking questions and I listened to an amazing podcast about someone that was speaking about this and how things can change from shift from fear for example sharks being scared of sharks to then being curious about them and then by looking at certain patterns on a shark it then linked to some uh, I'm probably going to say it wrong I can't remember but basically what I'm trying to say is curiosity I believe is so important and it's the reason why I pursued science because it's nice to look around and know why certain things are the way they are why orangutans do that why why is it that this or that and this and that and I try in anything I do to retain that curiosity particularly among children and teenagers and young adults but also every age group we it's so essential that we have that curiosity and so I think those two things are the are the big thing that inspired me with pursuing a science degree and then focusing more on orangutans and wildlife conservation mm-hmm. so that story of that orangutan falling out of that tree because of the branch mm-hmm. breaking and then that is remarkable yeah that's that's next level harmony with the uh natural environment that's i've got a lot of stories like that yeah i bet you do so that and then um that curiosity yeah i think that's super important um because i'm a big believer in deep thinking i kind of i love to just think (laughs) But I think it's important and that goes hand in hand with curiosity. If you're curious, you start to think about things more. And, um, yeah, it's hard not to be curious about the natural world or just everything around us if you you have a bit of an open mind because there's just so many things to be curious about. It's worlds, you know, it's a crazy world out there and it's, we kind of block ourselves off from a lot of questions and a lot of experiences and thoughts because I don't know, we're probably um, so set in how we should be operating our lives and the system and all that, all that kind of stuff. Um, so the orangutan species, so the Tapanali orangutan, mm. when people think of orangutans, Usually they think of the Bornean and Sumatran species, but there's actually a third species. Yeah. Can you talk about that and kind of maybe how that was discovered and how they maybe differ from the other two species? Yeah, so, I mean, this was hugely exciting. It was only a few years ago in 2017 mm-hmm. that a third species of orangutan was discovered or it was finally decided that this was an individual species. and. I find, going back to the curiosity thing, the fact that we're in this day and age discovered a new species of animal, a mammal that shares almost 98% of its DNA with us just two years ago is is huge. Mm -hmm. Um, So the the way that they kind of finalized that this was an individual species was looking at the skull. The Tapanuli orangutan's skull is um, somewhat smaller. But interestingly, the, this third species, well, I'll say a bit about it first. So it's, uh, it's the most endangered great ape. There's under 800 individuals left. And they are um, 
the habitat is the Batangturu forest, which is in Sumatra. Mm-hmm. And so they're all there in, in this area. Um, and interestingly, so this area is in Sumatra. So you would think that they would look visually similar and somewhat closer related to the Sumatran orangutans. But actually, um, that's not the case. They're more similar to the Bornean orangutans. And the difference between the Bornean and the Sumatran, a major one is that Sumatran orangutans have uh, blonder kind of beards here. Also, the men and females tend to have beards, whereas the Bornean, they don't, and they don't have that blonde, lighter hair. Um, Another interesting difference between the species is that in Borneo, where I lived, the the Bornean orangutans don't really have any threats. I mean, pit vipers and snake, other snakes, but generally speaking, there's a lot less that threatens them in terms of predators and in terms of non-humans in, yeah of course yeah that's, that's a good part <laughs> um, creating catastrophic damage not just indirectly but directly as well with horrible um you know a, a number of bullets like we'll get onto that later yeah, yeah, but yeah. <laughs> apart from humans you know there are some bears but they kind of keep their own distance apart from snakes bornean orangutans can come to the ground and whereas Tapanuli orangutans, they have the Sumatran tiger. So they don't come to the ground. And um, a group of researchers were studying uh, the Tapanuli orangutans. And for 3,000 hours, the, the study orang- um, Tapanuli orangutans didn't come to the ground once. Whereas the Bornean orangutans, the ones that I was um, studying, the males, after a certain age, they get so big, the cheek padder dominant males, that they often... Uh, seen walking along the forest floor and there's actually Dayak um, stories which say that they turn into ghosts because they can no longer support themselves in the trees so they're just seen walking for miles and miles and miles on the forest floor and their long hair on their arms gets all dreadlocked together and starts sort of I don't know, I've always wanted to see that it's quite a mysterious time kind of quite elusive at that age but yeah so it was an interesting thing as well geologically because of the Tapanuli orangutans looking more similar to the Bornean. And it goes back to when the orangutan species diverged. Um, there were two major splits that okay. took the um, orangutans from South Asia to Toba. Um, and that was the first split. Wait, and where's the Toba? Se- um, Toba is in Sumatra. North? Uh, yes. Well, I actually, my geography is absolutely awful, but gosh, I'd have to look it up on a map. We can look it up. We've got Google Maps. Tuba. Okay, we'll look- Tuba. So T-O-B-A. Tuba. Um, so that's in Sumatra. And the second split was over to Borneo. Um, so that kind of gives you the Bornean orangutans. But at that time with the Ice Ages, there was quite a lot of free movement between Toba and Borneo until Toba erupted. And the lava destroyed all of the um, forest around that area. So then that species there became completely isolated. They had no way of, you know, um, reproducing with the other two separate groups. Mm-hmm. So that's why they then believe that the Tapanuli orangutan look and are more similar visually to the Bornean. Because before this, before the eruption, they were in, the areas were interchangeable and there was some... Um, into species sort of, well, 
that was mating between the two, mm. um, those two. But I mean, all of this is amazing and there's huge amounts of excitement in discovering this, but what cannot really go um, ignored here is first how few there are left. And when I do talks at schools, I always say to the children, you know, how many, how many, how many are you in this school? A thousand or I don't know, however many. You can do it at work if you're listening and you're at work or think of a train or anything like that. And then you think of 800 of those people in the assembly hall mm. or in the canteen or on the bus or train. That is the entire population of this um, third species. And not only that, but there's a projected dam, hydroelectric dam and plantation that is set to be built um, that would obliterate the habitat, this last remaining bit. And, I mean, there's a huge chance, a huge probability that it would put the species, would set it to be extinct soon after it's just been discovered. Yeah, so the, the discovery 2017, amazing mm. news. And now there's this dam proposal in Sumatra that has the potential to wipe out their population, really. Yeah. Tapa, Tapa Nuli? Tapa Nuli yeah. uh, orangutan yeah. population. So what's, yeah, what is the status on that at, at the moment? Is it likely to go ahead? These I know you've been involved in protests. Yeah. Have they had an impact on maybe deterring that from coming to fruition? There, there are a few things that um, were quite big factors in this, and one that I would say with the protests and when I was uh, encouraging children at schools to write letters, to, to give a bit of background, this um, hydroelectric dam um, would, be, would, ha would include an eight-mile tunnel. And if you think about the roads and the tunnels and the electricity wires, that fragmentation on the habitat is devastating particularly as these orangutans as we mentioned before don't go to the ground so they wouldn't be able to cross that way if there's a massive gap mm -hmm. between areas of forest that's it game over mm -hmm. they're not going to survive it's like just having a massive wall yeah exactly a, a road in this equivalent it, is the equivalent of a wall yeah um, so an enclosure it's, it's an enclosure yeah. yeah and um but the interest the thing that i found quite interesting about this is Aside from looking at the orangutans, mm -hmm. there are a lot of problems with this um, proposed dam. Firstly, uh, there were reports that signatures were actually forged um, for this dam to go ahead. Secondly, there are huge risks of flooding from this hydroelectric dam later down um, in the course of this river, which would um, be devastating for the people that live and use this river nearby. And also um, it would halt the migration of a fish. There's a really vital fish called the Jurong fish. The Jurong um, fish. Yeah, Jurong fish. And so not only this, but what I found hugely um, powerful with when we were protesting about this with this dam is that reasonably nearby there's a geothermal um, energy source that's already set up and this geothermal um, plant I suppose you'd call it um, was well, a, a project geothermal project um, does not affect orangutans whatsoever and um, Sumatra already has an excess of electricity so when you combine protesting against a certain thing for the impact that it's going to have, that's one thing. But to be able to provide the hard facts that 
it's really not worth it. You've mm-hmm. got an alternative that you could expand at no cost to the orangutans, at no cost to this third great rarest great ape. Um, it set up a far more I don't know what you're promising situation when you were protest when I was protesting I thought because you provided an alternative and I think that was um sorry sorry I got sidetracked the the outcome at the moment following the protests the Bank of China agreed to hold off from further um development and some meetings have gone ahead I think in the recent weeks a few more cracks have come to the surface about this proposed dam in terms of how certain issues have come up which makes it even more uh, even less admirable even if you're not thinking about the conservation side of things less admirable in terms so of how it can affect the community or are you talking about like it's not financially viable kind of stuff um, not for on the side of China's belt and road project so the Bank of China for them certain cracks have come in the, in this proposed dam so for example the before with the um with the fact that the geothermal project is right there the, the risk of the flooding all of these things are actually showing that it's not as there's better alternatives they thought for you know an economic benefit yeah which is what it boils down to really um so that's probably the biggest uh bargaining chip that you have is trying to convince them that they'll yeah. they'll earn more money by going down a different route yeah and i think what is a it's a thing that's personally come up time and time again when you consider palm oil and you consider um many different things linked to conservation it is really important one thing is is getting people aware of an issue and getting people feeling it and wanting to do something it's also so important to provide a solution. And that is what I rack my brains over and over and over with because Very good point. even with filmmaking, people watch a film and they're, they're crying or they're so moved by it and they want to know what they can do. But with Paul, it's always this somewhat nebulous topic. It's not like plastic where you take a reusable coffee cup with you in the day and using that, you have now had 365 less um, coffee cups into the ocean or you know into the environment with palm oil it's more it's more complex there are more layers of there's 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 more to it it's not as clear-cut and i think that when you do address these things if you can provide an alternative or a solution like this with the development of the geothermal project instead that's huge because you're not just saying no stop this forget all of that no don't care about those jobs no you're actually saying this is the situation, this would be the outcome, but this is the alternative for you to consider. And that's practical when you approach these problems, these issues is if you disagree with option one, you're trying to convince them to go yeah. down a different route, you need to give them a reason to. They need to, yeah. you can't just say, this is wrong. Okay, see you later. Mm-hmm. You know, say this is wrong because of this, but maybe if you go down this route, you can still earn X amount of dollars and we'll, be, we'll both be happy. So it's, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's awareness of the, the threats, the, the, the issues, but also awareness of um, the solutions and alternatives. Mm. And I think that's probably 
that's one thing I'm trying to wrap my head more around is um, is through trying to raise awareness is not only bringing to light the things that are going wrong, but kind of what we can actually do as everyday human beings. Yeah. Um, what, what actions or what changes can we make? What macro, micro changes can we make uh, in order to mitigate those threats or to reduce them, minimize them? Mm-hmm. Okay, so, um, so we're talking about threats and um, but so in terms of orangutans and the ecosystem what role this is a question that I'm always fascinated about because um, it when people say you shouldn't you should protect this species a lot of them say why like what are they Mm -hmm. doing for us so the question is what role do orangutans play in their ecosystem? Like why do they matter to the ecosystem? So the two major things that I think about when it comes to orangutans and the ecosystem um, are the following. The first is, as I said before, Malay orang- orangutan means person of the forest. Mm-hmm. But another thing that you could sit- consider them as are gardeners of the forest. They have a very complex um, diet of bark, termites. You know, there's over 300 recorded 317 different food sources that wow. they consume. And in doing so, I mean, they have crazy amounts of knowledge of particular fruiting trees at certain times, the, the where these are located, and they are the key seed dispersers of the forest from consuming the fruits and then basically the seeds being dispersed in their feces. Um, but the other, so that's, that's crucial for the, the survival and, and of the forest, which then in turn provides, you know, photosynthesizes and provides the oxygen that we breathe. And the second thing that they do, the second major thing is that every night orangutans, they're arboreal. So they spend the majority of the time up in the trees, unlike gorillas and chimpanzees and bonobos. Um, and in doing so, they create a new nest. To sleep in every night so this isn't just a mismatch sort of like a crazy bunch of twigs this is a carefully weaved together nest that has bent twigs which in the dense canopy of a tropical forest for example in Borneo sunlight very 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 rarely penetrates through the um, canopy mm-hmm. so by orangutans every night making a new nest They've broken branches, which allows sunlight to come through, yeah, and and photosynth and sort of allow the young leaves and the young um, shoots to grow and develop. And I have a friend um, called Annie, who's a marine biologist and a filmmaker as well, and she told me this um, statistic that I think is particularly powerful. If you're so, if you take two breaths right now, two deep breaths. the first of those comes from the ocean and the second comes from forests. So nice. it couldn't be more crucial. They orangutans are part of the very fabric of our lives, really, and our survival. We'd be holding our breath without them. Yeah. Everything is so interlinked that it's, um, yeah. So I'd say those are the two major, the major um, things, the roles they play in the ecosystems that they're in. It's fascinating. Um, 
yeah, I think it's important kind of breaking it down into those kind of things so people can process because people naturally instinctively, I think are aware that, you know, there's, there's value in all these organisms that are in these ecosystems, but it's not always clear kind of what, what, what it is, like what role do they play? Um, yeah, they're building the nest. So they build these nests every day. Yeah, they build them at sort of as the sun is going down. Um, and it, yeah, a new one every single day. Is, and the young. Why don't they, they do reuse them? Is that because they move around? Um, I think that generally, I, I've made my own sort of ideas about this. I'm sure there'll be papers about it, but I think health wise, like you don't risk of spreading parasites. Um, also just the, the strength of it will probably be stronger on the first night, particularly as in the rainy season with the rain and things. So yeah, there's a new one made every, every single day. Um, and sometimes the males, if they're following a, a female, particularly a large dominant male, sometimes can be more of a sort of rushed effort. But generally speaking, these are very, we could, you could sit in one and it would support your weight. I could sit in one, but they, they make a new one every day. Um, and it's very interesting watching the young make play nests, but mm. then later they will learn how to make proper ones. So just trying to visualize this nest. So is it just a, you could visualize it as just a big bird nest that's that's kind of resting so, on a branch in a tree or how do, is it, um, is it different? So is it a different kind of nest? Unlike yeah. bird nests where um, twigs are brought to the site, this is at the top, usually when two branches join, you know, like if you saw the shape of a Y, where these two branches join at the bottom, then all of the branches around it are broken at right angles, so certain angles, there's a variety of angles, um, and then kind of weaved between each other to uh, make it like a, a nest like that, if that makes sense. I think Probably so. Haven't explained. I think so. So the branches all come from that area, that particular um if this is a tree trunk here yep. in the shape of a wire and you imagine where two branches join that joint is the base of the nest or the location of the base of the nest and then all of the branches that are coming up from around that get bent at certain angles so that they weave all around to form a, a cup nest like that i see well and they do that every single day yeah that's um you sort of rise sunrise and, and sleep for sunset quite a nice time mm-hmm. how, and also, big, how, how big do they get um well this big uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, you know i'm again not like chimpanzees but with one of the fascinating things about orangutans is uh, the difference the orangutans fascinating because they have a thing called but i'm probably gonna say this wrong biomaturism by maturism, which basically means adult men and females, sub-adults, males and females look very similar. But then males go through this transformation, which varies with different ages of males, um, where they grow about three times the size. They turn into sort of a, a hulk, I suppose you could say. They grow these flanges, these cheek pads that come out like this, this throat pouch. Uh, they just quadruple their strength and they then are the dominant male of that area uh, they do the long calls and they're the ones that with that dominance tend to mate with the females as they go around and they have a sort of uh 
what would you call it, a, um, a range of about two kilometer radius. Um, but there's no set age where they turn into these dominant males with the cheek pads. It really depends on the environment and there's a lot of research that's going into it now to look at what these specific triggers are. So if I were to be able to show a photo of a sub-adult male, he could look quite similar to a female. But then at some point, they completely transform into these large flanged males. Um, and so they, they, I would say standing bipedally, they're about five, no, no taller than you or me, but their, their arms stretch when stretched out are so long. And when you're surrounded by, when, when you're near a male dominant, a dominant flanged male, I mean, even though they're maybe shorter than you, with the hair that comes down, with their, their massive body and the knowledge that they could, at the snap of their wrist, break your neck, the canines are almost the size of lions. Um, they have a strength of a bite that's four times the strength of a lion's. Like all these things, I mean, just looking at their hand, the muscles they have in each digit just blows my mind. So... They may not be bigger in terms of like tallness, but in presence, physical presence, they're, they're big. They are big. <laughs> so it's crazy. So that change from kind of a uh, normal sub adult to yeah. where they grow. What what do you call those? Um, so the, a cheek padder. You can cheek pads. A cheek padder or the, the things that they have in their face. Those cheek pads. The, yeah. the word. Is Flange. Flange. So these yeah. flanges, they, they, that doesn't correlate to their age. It's, it's triggered by the environment somehow. Triggered by the environment, yes. So male, uh, dominant male orangutans will do a long call. This happens maybe five times a day. It happens when I was there, it happened very, very, very early before sunrise. At sunrise, definitely one at sunset. And throughout the day, there may be one or two. And for the numerous times that I heard these calls, they never ever lost their. They always stopped me in my path. I suppose you could say yeah, that's probably not the right word, but it's, it's a, the long call. It can go for even ten, fifteen minutes sometimes. There, it starts with a sequence of sort of grumbles, and it builds up to this really loud booming thing, and then finishes with a kind of grumbling thing. And they can reach, you that, they can the travel through like two kilometers of the forest. This dense canopy, it can travel two kilometers. And that's kind of the male's message that he's boss. Mm -hmm. So there is a link between that and the sub-adult males um, who still um, mate, but it's more kind of sneak matings and things. They run away when the dominant male comes along. They're very much subordinate. Um, it is only at a certain time that the, the the change happens and they grow three times the, the size they are there. Very interesting. So mm. to keep on the physical characteristic kind of theme, yeah. the, these flanges, what's the kind of evolutionary purpose for them being there? What's So if you think about uh, the long calls, they kind of act as amplifiers, like speakers. Okay. I, I always think of the example, if you had a phone and you're playing music and you wanted to make it louder, you can put it in a cup. Mm. It's kind of like their face is one big cup big like cup. this. 
Um, and aside from that, just the, the look that they have um, with this throat pouch that can inflate and things and the hair grows so long on their arms, they, they just look quite formidable. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's interesting. Another thing, I mean, I've got a lot of things that are interesting about orangutans, but one that I find quite fascinating is that those male orangutans who are the dominant ones in that particular area actually prefer older females. Um, in terms of mating? Yeah. They, they, they positively ignore often like young females who would be sort of throwing themselves on <laughs> the male. They, they prefer... The most attractive thing is when an orangutan female has already had a um, an offspring. She's already had an infant who's grown up healthy. But on that, I mean, I'm probably tan- segueing a lot here, but the, one of the major things with orangutans is that their age, they, they have the longest time of um, sort of mother to infant care than any other animal, any other mammal. So, um, the young will stay with its mother for up to eight years in Borneo. Um, for the first five or so years, never ever leaving its mother's body. Wow. Not even. It would, it would just learn how to move in um, conjunction with slight movements of the mother. It will then move and it will not leave the mother's body for the first five years of its life. So that poses difficulty when uh, it's a struggle with this long sort of um stage life stage because they don't have offspring very often maybe once every 10 years Mm -hmm. so these um the loss of population that impact is amplified because the reproduction rate is lower yes but i would say orangutans as a species of the three species that's not the the major issue from my experience it's not that the species is um it's not that the individuals are struggling is that there's just no space mm-hmm. there's just no there's no there's nowhere particularly when you think of um these male orangutans that when two dominant males come into contact they'll fight um you can't have them in a close proximity each one needs their own two or so kilometer distance so as the land is getting reduced and fragmented with palm oil and pulp and paper there's nowhere to Re, you know, translocate or release these male orangutans. That's I think that is it's not that the species is not really linked as much to the the long life uh, caring stage with the mother and the infant. It's more linked to the fact that there's just mm. no nowhere. Mm. I mean the fact that it um, that reproduction thing is uh, there's more time in between. Yeah. When the population decreases, it's you know it's like it'd be harder for them because unlike in a, another species where they just reproduce every I don't know a couple of years or so, there's eight years in between. Mm-hmm. Hmm. That's one thing. Um, thing about the palm oil. When I I went to Borneo a couple of years ago with my mum, mm-hmm. she's always loved orangutans, and um. She's always, that's been her thing, is wanting to go to, to Borneo and see them in the wild. So when my girlfriend and I were traveling around Southeast Asia back in 2017, she had to come back to Australia to do a, um, a uni exam. So when she was there for three weeks, my mum came over to Borneo and we uh, 
the Malaysia part of Borneo, so at the top. Mm-hmm. And that was an incredible experience, but um, just the palm oil plantations and how that is bloody everywhere. And you, you drive down a road and you kind of, you see them, and then you wake up and then they're still next to you out the yeah. window. It's just as it's, far as it, the it, eye can see. I know it's, it's devastating. And, and uh, the weird, for me, this one of the freakiest parts is we used to have to drive through for six, seven hours a palm oil plantation. And um, we'd get out. Sometimes people need to have a wee or something. And it was just silent. There's no, no noise, nothing, because there's nothing. There's an occasional rat or snake. There's nothing. And it's just so weird that you can be in an area that has trees, there's no building, or, you know, there's the, the mills and everything, but it's eerily, eerily quiet. Um, and then you just see like a last bit of the peatland swamp forest or, um, and yeah, it's, it's devastating. Mm. So on those conservation threats, um, can you outline kind of what the, the main ones are? So habitat yeah. loss, like what are, like in, what so are those threats? For orangutans, the major threats are palm oil plantations and pulp and paper. And the threats here is that in order to grow this um, oil, the oil palm, um, the peatland swamp forests, that the, the area, the habitat for these orangutans and the countless other species has to get cut down or burned down to then create the space to grow these oil palm. I'll get onto that whole problem of burning in a second because that's a huge problem, not just for them, but for us. Um, but another problem is that once the uh, land is taken, these orangutans, which are now become sort of, their, their homes have been taken from them, they then appear as pests because there's nowhere for them to go. So they go to the villages, they're desperate for food. And that's when um, people react badly. That's when we've seen in the news these horrific incidences of um, orangutans that have been shot in the head 12 times or something like that. Another problem that they face is the um, pet trade that's still going on, where infants will be pulled off their mothers. Often if the mother has been killed, the infant will be taken as a pet um, on the illegal pet trade. Um, or taken and, and sold for um, in zoos or circuses. That still happens. There were some that were um, rescued from uh, Thai boxing and things like that. Others that have had horrific stories. I remember going to a talk by Ian Singleton, who leads up at Sumatran SOCP. There was one that had been in a crate, no bigger than its body, for 30 years. What? Um fed through a small hole so i mean there are devastating stories horrific things but it's mainly habitat loss habitat fragmentation due to palm oil but also um, pulp and paper and viscose uh, the the um, material that's in um mainly in fast fashion rayon um in order to get viscose you dissolve um you get dissolved pulp which comes from wood so that's another thing that we just don't really know about is that viscose that's not sustainably sourced is also contributing to this. Um, and the other thing that I'd say that's coming out now more than ever, 
uh, it's still kind of new. So I, I'm refraining from saying too much about it. But the reality that Jakarta, the capital of Indonesia, is sinking. Um, so there's going to have to, I won't say too much, but they will have to relocate Jakarta and all those people to another area in Indonesia um, as the capital sinks and those billions of people need to be translocated, uh, relocated sorry, um, to an area which is a bit worrying. That's a massive concern. Um, yeah. yeah. Is Jakarta coastal? Uh, it's uh, it suffers well. It's in the it's in Java, and the whole it suffers every year Floods. with terrible flooding. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So nothing's been set in stone as to where Jakarta the where the new Jakarta will be, but um, that seems like a a very complex yeah a very complex process. Yeah. There's a few proposed places, but until I know more, yeah, I probably yeah. will reflect yeah, saying totally, things totally. fake news. No, not fake, fake news. news. I mean, it is thinking. <laughs> it is literally thinking. That is hard facts, but where where the new Jakarta will be, uh, it's not set in stone just yet. But wherever that is, I don't know. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a big issue. Yeah, Particularly well, if it's in an area where there's uh, land forests. clearing, yeah, forests. Yeah. Okay. Wow, that's that's um yeah. that's crazy. Mm. Having to locate the capital of Indonesia. Yeah, I know it's it's a big thing, big thing. So the palm oil plantation. Um, so why why is it such a a bad thing for orangutans in the larger ecosystem. This ecosystem is it purely just the deforestation? That's that's that is what it is, right? That's why it's a bad thing. So, um, so probably I should say first is that it's an important thing to remember that palm oil is an efficient, ironically, an efficient um, oil. It takes up ten times less land than other oil alternatives, but that is not the only thing to go by and um it's not sustainable in my eyes the problem one of the major problems with palm oil is the way that it is uh initially well as we said before in order to um create an area for a palm oil plantation uh slash and burn fires happen to burn down this primary forest um, and it's not even that deforestation that, you know, even if you're not thinking about the orangutans, even if it's not that that causes you to want to do something, even if it's not the deforestation. The problem is that often these this habitat where they make um, uh, these, where the palm oil plantations are set to be developed is on peatland swamp. And so peat, um, when all of the matter falls in a forest it doesn't decompose it just builds up and up and up and up and up and the pressure pushes it down to create this peat that can be five six meters deep and when the slash and burn fires happen that peat catches on fire for hours at a time and that peat itself is like a store of tons of carbon i mean tons and when the fires hit it 
all of that carbon is then released into the atmosphere. So that's a terrifying problem. And the fires um, a few years ago in 2015, this is an interesting point that I like to think of that I actually put, um, I'm talking about in a few days is, okay, so if you think about palm oil, yes, okay, you could say that it is uh, a way for a poorer country to benefit economically from this land use change. But that's so short-sighted because if you take the fires, for example, that cost the um, uh, Indonesian Borneo, uh, it cost Indonesian Borneo something like, uh, wait, I've got it written down how much it cost. Um, it cost 16 billion US dollars, the effects of that fire. $16 billion, and I don't like comparing things to GDP because I think it's a bad, it's not the right calibration, but it was 1.8% of the GDP. So if you think that if, if we consider palm oil to be something that will benefit some, um, you know, a country and economy, it, it's not it's not black and white like that. Mm. There's actually, it's so short-sighted to consider it like that. And when, uh, yeah, that's what I'm trying to get at really. So... The carbon store on the peat, that's a huge one with the fires. And, um, and the fires are there as part of the deforestation process. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And then so through that burning of that forest, that releases releases a lot of that carbon stored in, in the peat, which yeah. is that layer. Yeah. It can be so deep. Yeah, it's all locked in carbon. So that's the big that's the big problem. That's not even related. That's not related to orangutans. That's related to climate, climate change. Crisis. Yeah. yeah, climate yeah crisis, climate mm -hmm. change. This kind of doesn't really do it justice, does it? No. Um. So that brings me to my next point, um, which is kind of the, pos <laughs> the positive solutions. Um, what can we do as the general public to kind of help in some way? Okay, so I think a major thing uh, with this is to, to celebrate uh, and to spread awareness of what people in the field are doing because there's a lot that's going on with a lot of different organisations and it's great to highlight this, to, to raise awareness of this. So um, take the issue of land first the issue with orangutans that orangutans are having for land when we we're saying before about there's just no space socp and ian singleton are developing these orangutan havens which um are kind of like large protected areas that have a board around them that orangutans can then be released into uh, and these are, tend to be the orangutans that can't uh, be released back into the world. Um, for example, the male that was kept in a um, crate for 30 years, the, the level of trauma that he's gone through is unimaginable. But other things that are happening are um, incredible education things. So a, a huge thing um, is education. And the Orangutan Foundation International have education programs. And I know this is more related to some bears, but KWPLH, Led by Gabriella Fredrickson, 
has created this wonderful Sambe Centre where people are able to go in Balikpapan, in Borneo, and just enjoy nature and see these animals and, um, in a place where there maybe isn't that much uh, na- you know, connection with the wildlife around you. This is crucial. So education, um, the havens, also um, film, as we said before. So Red Ape, when Greenpeace did the uh, Rangtan with Mother, that I know some people said was controversial, but I mean, the amount of people that went viral, the amount of people, I don't know if you saw it, the, anim- the animation that Iceland wanted to use in their Christmas advert was created by Greenpeace and Mother. Um, I uh, well, I, I can send a link to you. It's a, there's a Rangtan in my bedroom. That's the poem. It's an animation. Um, Our Planet, um, the recent Netflix and Silverback documentary that was linked to WWF, that had an amazing sequence with orangutan. So film is a great way. But also um, when companies, for example, Lush, um, collaborate with others, so SOS, Sumatran Orangutan Society, and they created that soap, the orangutan soap, that they only had the amount of orangutans that were left in the wild. So when that soap was gone, it was symbolized how many were left. Artwork as well, you mentioned before, one of your previous... Um, podcast episodes um i'm probably going to say his name wrong ernest zachary but he does these incredible massive murals um in indonesia that showcase what's happening with the fires with orangutans with deforestation with palm oil so using art collaborations with other businesses um so that that's a lot that's going on and also um shell knots as well with orangutans she is doing a lot of like community-based stuff. So providing alternative jobs and um, allowing, this is a crucial one that I haven't mentioned before, but allowing those people, um, Dayak people who own the land but have no proof of this because they don't have paperwork, helping them gain back their ownership of their ancient land, really. Their ownership to that land is crucial because they don't want the palm oil plantations but often they don't have the tangible evidence to prove that it's theirs yeah okay well so that's that's probably another thing for another time i'm just bombarding you things here but show no, that brings up a totally important point though <laughs> tim layman tim Lamont, um together they they have been doing some amazing community-based things um but for us i think there are a few things that i would like to address because it is maybe slightly more complicated than we said before, like plastic pollution, but there are things that we can do. And the first is to push as a consumer for transparency, whether that's with palm oil, whether that's with fast fashion, pressurizing the brands and the companies that we use to uh, be more transparent about where they're sourcing palm oil from and what policies they have in place to uh, address deforestation with their commodities is so important and it's been really rubbish over the last few years so on that what i mean by that yeah what, yeah. what do you mean so what that? i mean is uh that would say uh there are a number of major companies that supply commodities um in the world so whether that's nestle um dorito you know uh, unilever um, marks and spencers any big corporation 
commodities uh, certain commodities are linked to tropical deforestation so obviously palm oil but you've also got cattle soy uh, pulp and paper and timber and with these commodities if a company is using or supplying those commodities what policies are there in place that show that that company is trying to push forward with zero deforestation and um, probably not explain this correctly, what impact is that, um, are they having on deforestation? Mm -hmm. And um, a great way, what's happened with this is that um, a think tank called Global Canopy Programme have created something which is called Forest 500, which I'm making a little uh, film about tomorrow, actually. And what this does is this is a um, this is on a website that we can access online, and it has an annual assessment of the 500 biggest companies that have uh, the most influence in tropical deforestation through supplying certain all of those commodities that I listed before, and us as consumers we can go on that and say okay well i i shop with blah blah or i use this and it ranks them with uh five different rankings on how they're addressing deforestation that they're linked to that they're responsible for so it really calls them out on these things and and we can see how they're doing and and in the past it was just kind of ranked on whether they had policies or whether they didn't but now it's ranked on whether they have policies and whether they're actually whether they've put stuff in place to allow these policies to, to happen, more than what they're doing uh, to make these policies go ahead. Um, because in the past, being labeled, being RSPO labeled as sustainable is has many cracks in it because there was no proof that these policies were actually being um, put in place mm -hmm. with sort of time-bound commitments and things. Okay. Yeah. So, so that's, that's that a big website. Thing. What what was that website called? Five hundred. Forest five hundred. Okay, so uh, you, someone can hop on that website, and, and there will be information of these companies. Businesses. Yeah. So you can go on and you can be like, right? Well, I uh, I really like uh, Nestle, which is bad. I hope you don't. But I, I want to check out how Nestle is doing. They go on. They see, oh my god, they are doing. You know, we could look at it. I, I'll put a little demo on a film tomorrow, but. Fortunately, it's something like in the 2018 report, 40% of companies had no policies, which is not good. Mm -hmm. But the good thing is that of the com of the commodities, palm oil is the one that is most focused on. So I would say quite a complicated way of saying it, but as a consumer, know that you have a voice and know that with your voice, you can pressure people to have transparency. 100%. Um, and the other things are just um, what I was going to do. I really strongly believe that living a uh, low-impact, sustainable, plant-based lifestyle is huge. And as we said before, you know, obviously switching one oil for the other has limitations. But the more that you do eat locally, sustainably, and um, plant-based, you see that actually you don't consume foods that have these oils in. Processed foods have the, the oils in and, and sort of things like that tend to have palm oil in. But when you're cooking fresh and, and often these things, you know, there are hundreds of recipes now that show you can do it far quicker, far cheaper. And it doesn't 
tend to have these um, products, even uh, shampoo bars and uh, by, you know, like more um, eco-friendly clothing, clothes washes. Mm-hmm. These things don't have, I'm going for more of a holistic approach to things. Um, you, you cut Which out is the palm- right approach, yes. long term. <laughs> yes. And you're cutting out palm oil and you're not even substituting it for another oil that the argument is takes up um, more land. You're just cutting it out. Mm-hmm. And it's not even feeling like you're boycotting it. You're just through changing your lifestyle in these little shifts. Um, it's benefiting the environment. It's benefiting rankings, but it's also benefiting your health. Mm. Palm oil is good for us. It's no. really not good for us. Um, so I think, yes, your lifestyle plays a huge role and, and every one of us can do something about that. And spreading the word, using social media in positive ways, creating little films with your phone. You can get free editing apps. You can, we've seen the power of these films and these animations and spreading the word and connecting with people on recipes and things to do is, is, is a really powerful way. We have the information in a click of our hand on, on a, Eco, Ecosia rather than Google <laughs> search. Um, uh, and yeah, to feel empowered, not deflated. Uh, that, that point that you touched on with kind of acknowledging that we have a voice, I think is yeah. critical because I saw a meme the other day. Um, it was about um, plastic uh, pollution in mm-hmm. the oceans. And it was, it said, um, me kind of using a single-use plastic. Oh, no, what does it say? So there's a meme and it said, my action doesn't matter. My individual action doesn't matter, says 8 billion people. Something along yeah. those lines. But the, the whole idea is th- there's this... Um, Just one straw said... That, uh, yeah, that was it. It was just one straw says 8 billion people. Yeah. And it's this mentality that, you know, my individual action has yeah. no power. There's no substance to it. But people don't, um, I'm not aware that, you know, every action, every individual action doesn't act in isolation. It, there's a ripple on effect. And, yeah. um, well, I think it's even just looking um, in the UK. Uh, now, the amount of restaurants that have at least one vegan option, the the success of the Extinction Rebellion, um, peaceful protests in uh, the UK and Ireland announcing a climate crisis, the fact that um, the protests about the Tapanuli orangutan pressured the Bank of China to halt the, the development. I mean, the, the, the letters that every child, every one of them wrote was read. And I think that, as you said, your everyone plays a role everyone has a voice so use that voice well and find the things that people connect to if it's not if it's not the orangutans think of the air that you breathe and you want your children to breathe Mm. it's it's about everything is so interlinked that we've become into this fast demand lifestyle where we expect a meal to be cooked in the microwave in four seconds Mm. not four seconds probably takes longer but (laughs) yes that's going to have just quick, 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 not going to be good for your health. But there are heaps of things that I'm still learning from the internet, from books, from friends about um, tips and tricks for low impact, you know, a more sustainable lifestyle. And it's all there. The information's there for us to learn and for, commu- you know, it's a, it's a community feel. We just got to give it a go. We do have to give it a go. 
And um, yeah, we as consumers have have the power and um, all these businesses, um, when it boils down to it, in essence, they all operate off uh, supply and demand. So when we purchase a product or a service um, that has a you know unethical process, we are effectively demanding those businesses involved to supply that, continue to supply that product to us. So if we choose to reject that product um, over time, the supply will decrease um, because the demand is decreased. So, you know, it's, it's not always easy to see how these small actions, kind of the impact that it's having, but we need to kind of consider a time frame and it, these changes take time. And um, it's not like you'll wake up tomorrow morning and all the plastic's got to be out of the ocean or palm oil plantations are non-existent. It's a gradual process, but it comes down to us as consumers um, choosing wisely and rejecting the things that are, are bad for our planet. And and pressurizing those in power to prioritize conservation mm -hmm. and biodiversity, because until that's a priority. How do you pressurize can... that? How do you do that? Um, I think writing demanding transparency the the forest 500 website is a great way that has pressurized them because it's open to the public everyone can see exactly how they're doing nothing can be hidden anymore and um i think that the more that we pressurize them in forms of communication mm -hmm. the more they can't ignore it i'd say there was something else i was going to say on that matter um uh, to, I mean, two like, slightly less specific things, but I really think people are, should, uh, like as much as they can to push those STEM subjects um, for like the younger generations to carry on with science and technology and engineering and mathematics because that's so crucial. And to, again, with that younger generation, really em empower them because it can be a difficult time. I mean, with the climate sort of anxiety that people you know the, the sort of feeling that people have especially that I've got younger siblings and it's tough because it's always on their mind the whole time and I've also volunteered with a number of um, 12 to 16 year olds with action for conservation and spoke to them and it's it's a lot to take on a lot with with exams and this and that but for people to feel involved then when you come together and unite then you pressure together um, the corporations that have this um, potential to really halt um, or at least re drastically reduce deforestation, it's got to cut, they, they, there's got to be change. Mm -hmm. And whilst that's happening, what we can all do as well is so important. But putting that pressure and then realizing that they, change needs to happen and it needs to happen fast. It's not about um, not meeting 2020 deforestation thing. Like, and things need to happen now. Things do need to happen now. Um, how do we, how do we kind of combine our forces? What can you recommend any like online resources or groups that kind of foster that collaboration? Um, yeah, I think so. If people listening have a particular interest with orangutans, there are a number of um, volunteering things that they can do, both out in Borneo and also in any um, actually across the globe. Um, I know that Orangutan Foundation International have a annual construction volunteers uh, three-week 
thing, like a, not an internship, like um, you go and you help construct a boardwalk or a part of um, the, the something within the forest. Or if you want to do something more sort of locally to where you're living, um, I mean, fundraising is a huge thing. And many of these organizations have ways that you can uh, do anything and fundraise for them. Uh, or you can join up, join forces with other people and fundraise together. Um, I mean, there are a number of groups that people can join. Extinction Rebellion, they have them in many, many different countries, and that comes together, and you can be more focused on the science things and biodiversity um, issues rather than, you know, you don't have to always do the activism. There are many different avenues of Extinction Rebellion. And just keeping the conversations going, really, like striking conversations, making content, organizing talks, going to talks, um, emailing people who are like, often people will get back to you. I know particularly within filmmaking, many of the, the people in production that I've always been in awe of their work, they'll meet you for a coffee. Just got to keep trying. I would say within each place, find like sustainability groups, volunteering as well is huge. I found the, the, the trajectory that I've been on now from loving orangutans to having a career and for the last few years really honing in on how, you know, also looking at it professionally, all stem from volunteering mm-hmm. um, those years ago. Uh, I, I, like that, that, without a shadow of doubt, that's, that's how I've got to where I've got to now. So I can't recommend volunteering enough. And if there isn't a group available, make one, I'd say. <laughs> yeah. That's a very good point. Um, we live in this internet age where we have that power we can we can create a we can create a group on facebook on instagram on any social platform and we can start reaching out to people and trying to harness that power we we can literally do that now Mm. um and the two sorry i just remember two other so the the ones that i'm involved with just if if this uh helps so there's um ape alliance uh run by ian redmond so Ape Alliance is based in Bristol, but that's worldwide. Um, and that focuses on all of the great apes. That's who I did the Tapanuli protest with. Um, and there are multiple talks that happen. That's a really great one to look up. Uh, and they also on the website show uh, many different volunteering opportunities and ways you can get involved. Uh, and then Action for Conservation basically uh, gets young adults engaged and uh, involved with uh, conservation and then your local wildlife trust i know in the uk they have many different wildlife trusts but around the whole world there'll be different little groups it's just about having a search i'd say having a little um, and finding one what's your google alternative search ecosia ecosia so we just need to do a cosia search and find those groups in every search mm. <laughs> <sighs> There's a lot to uh, digest, but we need to stay optimistic and with the power of the internet, that's kind of my thesis is, Mm -hmm. is how can we use this online platform that we have all, most of us have access to for good? Because we know it has the power to do, to take a lot of things viral, has the power to influence elections potentially in the United States via Russia, whatever. 
but um, has a lot of potential. Um, there's a lot of power there if we just harness it correctly and yeah. we can start a little Instagram awareness page on Instagram and yeah. create content. We don't even have to create content. We can share other people's content and that's, that is your content. So if, if you're not a creator, if you're not a filmmaker, a painter, you can document your content. You don't even have to create or you can repost other people's content. There's, yeah. we can all contribute to that awareness part at least. Um, yeah. And even taking Greta, I love what Greta said, um, Greta Thunberg, um, about, you know, she's a, a schoolgirl who just decided to stop going to school. And if one person deciding to not go to school has had this impact, it just shows what each one of us can have. I mean, she's a true inspiration for me. And I think that's just a perfect example is find what you can do and just have hope. I know she says, I don't want you to have hope. I want you to panic. But I think you've got to have hope. You ought to have hope. Otherwise, you know, we've got to have hope and we've got to... I think um, you need hope. You need you need this awesome. belief that we can achieve this. Yeah, we have to have this belief or hope that we can achieve this. Otherwise, it uh, uh, de- uh, deter a lot of people anyway if they can't yeah. visualize that end goal. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I think that comes down to, um, I guess, kids growing up into adults too quickly, and um, yeah not realizing that there's a lot of different ways that we can live our life. Uh, it's not just the one that they teach us in, in primary school and high school. There's many different um, pathways out there and through the internet, we can, we can literally do what we want to do as long as that's mapped to hard work and um, skill to some degree, we can mm. do what we want to make a, a living out of it. And my purpose at the moment is, um, trying to, my purpose is trying to find my purpose, and how I define that is trying to find something that I'm good at, trying to find something that I'm passionate about, trying to find something that can make me money and something that can um, add value to the world. So the intersection of those four points, I think, is the definition of purpose, well, at least in my book. And um, if people can use their curiosity or think deeply about what those things are, we can actually achieve those things if we, if, I guess if we, let's say if we attempt to achieve that purpose and we're 35, 40, and we realize at that point maybe we got it wrong, you're 40 years old, you can do something else. Like it's, it's still, like people are deterred with the idea of failure and trying something mm-hmm. new because of failure and um how they feel they'll be perceived by the people but it really doesn't matter like you need to do what you feel is best for you and for the collective well-being of the planet and Mm. um just do it and keep doing it keep trialing experimenting and testing and just keep doing it and if you fail that's just part of the journey but just keep doing it um we've been talking Okay. Um, another thing I was going to say on that is having that connection with nature, because as we said right at the start, like if you don't experience things, it's very hard to care. And particularly over the last year or so, I've been trying to take a far more holistic approach to things. So before, you know, it was always like 
Well, it's actually quite interesting and quite easy to link it with a plant-based low impact or trying to be low impact lifestyle. Um, and just by using things like essential oils or trying to not um, like grow, growing my own things and this and that, you, it's such a amazing way to connect with the world around us because you use something that's plant-based and you see the power that it's had really seriously not placebo genuinely power that's had and you're just in yes. awe of the natural world and in turn that will make you connect to it and want to protect it that's a real thing so Bi biophilia like yeah humans yeah. have this innate um desire to be to be close to nature and they've done many um tests and experiments where even in the office space in the city if an office where there's plants or greenery in the office is more productive uh, than an office space without that greenery and plantation. Mm. It's, well, we just work better when we are closer with the natural world and it's it, it, there doesn't need to be this disconnect and we're, we're better off if we are more connected. Um, yeah. It's not like it's a trade-off where if we're with nature, we lose these other things. If we're with nature, we actually gain a shitload of stuff as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even the, even the planting your own stuff, I recently bought some plants that are out on my balcony. I'm in, in Brisbane at the moment, kind of, I'm looking at the city now, but we've got a little balcony here and we've got a couple of chili plants, tomatoes, passion fruit. This is even that, just having that and it's like watering, me, watering them each day and... It's kind of lame just sitting down on the couch and just hanging out with your green friends. Yeah, that is fantastic. <laughs> We've got a lot of time for that. <laughs> I'm the same. I'm the same. Yeah. yeah. So I think that that desire, that is in all of us. We just need to tap into that. And yeah. the challenge is kind of well, what can we do to, um, to tap into that, what, whether that's through storytelling or facts or whatever we just it, it is in every human being that desire to be close to nature and to want to protect nature but we just need to i think people just uh, um yeah just disconnected from that fact mm. um but we've been chatting for about an hour and 25 minutes so i don't know kind of there's a couple of questions i want to say before we go and mm -hmm. is that cool with you yeah yeah of course okay um, so there are kind of two closing questions. So before I go to those, is, is there any topics that you want to touch on that we haven't touched on at the moment? Anything you kind of want to talk about? I think there was only something really, I don't know if you were planning on asking this, but just about, uh, like a certain thing with orangutans, cause there's something that I find so like, aside from all of the other amazing things that we've spoken about. There's a couple of two sort of, sort of things that I think is quite cool to mention. Right, three. Tell, tell me these three okay. cool things. Okay, so Thanks. the first is that um, remember we were talking before about when a dominant uh, a dominant male, how big he is. Yeah. Um, yeah. The woman that I used to work with, uh, Brute Galdikas, once saw a male orangutan hanging from a branch two fingers just two fingers his entire body weight and then from a few seconds he was just with one finger 
And so that is one thing that's blown my mind. The second thing that's blown my mind that's very current is that uh, recently a paper came out that's very controversial. Um, and some people, you know, say it's got a bit of, you know, it's controversial, but it needed to be acknowledged, it needed to be aired, is that in fact, humans are more closely related to orangutans than they are to chimpanzees. I read that, artic- uh, that article. Yeah, so not based to, like, not based on genetics. DNA. And- based on uh, physical, physical characteristics yeah exactly. i was uh, gonna is, i was gonna ask you that actually really i jumped the gun but that's that's really fun i like that a lot um obviously i like but that it's, a lot. it's a fairly controversial thing right like yeah it's kind of a big jump to say they're our closest relative yeah. based on what I they look like physically it's it's fascinating so the fact that um, many other characteristics that were considered just human. So the fact that we have a, a hole, like a sort of hole on the top roof of our mouths. We have a hairline, oh. um, not a hole, like a, a kind of, say a hole, like a bit on the roof of our mouths. Mm-hmm. Rare, uh, was before considered a, a solely human trait, but orangutans have that. Hairline, orangutans have that. And actually it turned out that there were Humans share 28 similarities with orangutans, but they share two with chimpanzees and they share seven with gorillas. So that's quite a big, quite a big jump. So what would that suggest? Would that mean that? Well, it's sort of one of the reasons it's controversial is because it, it, as it stands, human, the, the human evolution, it is, it is acknowledged that humans you know, originated in Africa, right? Mm-hmm. But orangutans came from Southeast Asia, so it doesn't really. Add, there's, there's a lot of confusing bits there. It, it goes against what we know for human Can't evolution. Really. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's, necess- it's an interesting thing, one to be acknowledged. But totally. yeah. Um, and then my third thing was. Maybe this is something that you were going to ask in a closing thing. Were you going to ask me any more things about orangutans? I was going to say, how are orangutans and humans similar? Oh, I kind of answered that. Uh, And and the last one was, the closing question was going to be, what makes orangutans special to you? Okay, well, I can probably link this to all of those that that above. Okay. That's probably a good thing to end on. So, um... There are a lot of things that make humans and orangutans similar. Uh, emotions, um, we've seen like physical characteristics. But one thing that I've always found so intriguing about orangutans and uh, something that has always stuck with me from spending time with wild orangutans, from studying them, from filming with them, is the fact that unlike gorillas, unlike bonobos, unlike uh, chimpanzees, Orangutans are semi-solitary, so they spend the vast majority of their lives alone or with their young. They still have encounters with um, other orangutans and the infants can play and things like that. But when you, when I think of orangutans and having orangutans as friends, uh, even, even observing them or studying them, the way they are with humans the way they are in their environment is so fascinating in the sense that 
they don't need to continuously reaffirm or prove friendships. If one trusts you, the way that you know is that it's let you go close and it hasn't bitten off your hand. It's, they often, it's so effortless, the little glimmer of acceptance that it looks as if it's kind of almost by mistake. But you know that you don't need to constantly prove this friendship. It's just there. They, 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 it, it's so subtle, but so uh, genuine that it's something that I've tried to really think about with friendships with humans. I mean, you can learn so much from not only our similarities, but our differences with orangutans. And the way that they stare into your eyes and I'm blinking gaze for a second, 20 seconds at a time, honestly, is just the most all-absorbing thing I've ever encountered in my whole life. But they don't need to stroke you. They don't need to groom you. It's just so much is said in that moment that it, I'm probably not explaining it very well. It, it's more no, the, I, I, the sounds pretty powerful. And the way that they don't, it's it's just kind of they don't need us they don't care about us but there's a deep connection that's kind of based on just being in each other's presence that i find very mesmerizing well, yeah i think i think that's so it's like a they don't need you yeah. But there's this like acknowledgement that we're both here. Yeah. Hmm. Mm. And yeah, it's something about that. Like that just. Uh, it's that ag- you- acknowledgement. I think even, even that acknowledgement alone is important. I think we <laughs> go about our business every day without even yeah. the acknowledgement of other human beings or anything. And I, I think just that simple act of acknowledgement speaks yeah. volumes. Or even just the fact that, you know, we're always so many societal pressures say, thank you or be polite or are you sure, like reaffirm this, affirm that, like where where do we stand as friends, like da da with orangutans, that <laughs> None of that happens. It's 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 so uh, authentic. Authentic. It's kind of like you just know. If you get on with an orangutan, you get on with the orangutan. It's, it's never going to change. Mm-hmm. Even if you don't see it for six, seven years, it will never change. But you don't need. If it was a human, you don't need to WhatsApp every Friday to make sure they haven't forgotten about you. It's done. If that connection's there, it's there, permanent. You don't need to prove it. Yes, you don't need like to keep that. it going. Like it's that. done. It's it's gone. It, I mean, it's not gone. It's 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 forged. Mm-hmm. It's, it's literally there. And you don't need to prove it. You don't need to constantly check. It's there. And that it's almost like is, a, yeah. This this trust know. thing. It's um mm-hmm. like just through that eye contact. There's this acknowledgement. There's this just trust. You're like um. I know, I, I guess with some humans, it's, you know, people may say one thing, but it's, that isn't mm-hmm. always 
the intention or there's something else to it. There's um, so I'd always trust or I don't know what I'm really trying to say. I think no, I know I mean, what you're talking about. I'm just trying to put myself yeah. in that situation and kind of visualize visualize it and feel imagine how I'd feel in that situation. Yeah, I'd say, I mean, we've got a whole heap of similarities, humans and orangutans. But the major thing that, that okay, I've got it, I've got it. <laughs> the major it. thing that separates us to orangutans is that orangutans are totally and utterly content in their own presence. Their whole lives. Yes. They don't, yes. They don't, and, and they interact, of course they interact, and they, they, they enjoy interactions. You've seen young play. And then the bond between a mother and an infant is like nothing else. Mm. But they don't need to prove that relationship. They don't, if two people, if two orangutans that have met a few months ago, a, a certain fruiting tree that seems to be in fruiting at that time, they may not see each other for two months. And then they'll go to a tree. They may not even, you know, go and they're not going to groom each other, but they just know. It's just they know that where they stand with the other. And they're so totally okay in their own company because in my eyes, I feel like their company is the forest. Going back to that whole thing that triggered me at the start with the putting the tree, the thing back on the branch, their troop, their their family is the, the forest. I kind of feel like I'm a bit of an, an orangutan. <laughs> I can, we all are. I'm a bit of a introvert <laughs> and I can kind of be by myself for forever. But um, that's fascinating. Yeah. It's almost as if one way to look at it for me is they they don't need to kind of prove themselves to like their their emotions or anything. It is it is what it is. But there's there's nothing to gain from um, proving something or like the thing that you're saying about um, what were you saying about them not needing to reaffirm themselves or prove yeah, yeah. they don't need to, they like, don't need to their friendship if they've yeah, got they a connection prove their, it's just there yeah. yeah and 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 um one way that i look at it is from my own personal experiences <laughs> um i'm pretending i'm an orangutan right now um is there's nothing from a practical perspective there's nothing to there's nothing to gain from trying to prove that um with me i try and i try to whatever i do trying to see if there's value in, in doing that. And if there isn't, I try and not do that thing. And there's, there's nothing to gain from trying to prove that, but there's, you don't gain anything. They don't gain anything. So what's the yeah. point in doing it? So in that sense, they're like an emotional minimalist. Yeah. yeah. Like their, their minimalism extends beyond just um, kind of their, their consumption. It's, it's a kind of their output of emotions. Yeah. And maybe I see it as like, instead of having, like if they, if it was a root with all the different bonds within a troop, because they have this bond with this person in the troop and this one, they, they don't have troops because they're semi-solitary. But if you compare to a chimpanzee or something, mm-hmm. like they have weird ally, not weird, wonderful, but allies and little tricks going on with it, with an orangutan. I just, instead of having loads of different roots, it's just one root that goes down deep that is a deep old root that connection is just one fat deep rooted connection and no matter of wind or rain nothing is going to blow that over but 
you don't need okay. to keep checking it. It's going to be okay. Probably doesn't explain well. But I'm quite a vi- weirdly visual person, but <laughs> I'm visualizing <laughs> that right now. Yeah, you've got a friend. If you connect with an orangutan, and that orangutan is actually a human, even if you didn't see each other for five years, you don't need to send them a WhatsApp to make sure that they're not annoyed they haven't spoken because they know that the connection you have is so deep that when you do get to see each other again, it's there and it it never falters. It's like they're aware of, they find that comfort or that reassurance and being aware of their role and their environment and their ecosystem. They're aware that while they're there, their, their purpose or their, the individual purpose in there and how that ties in with the collective purpose. When you are aware of that, everything else is almost doesn't matter because yeah. you can always revert back to why you're here. And if you have clarity yeah. in what that is, then you can be at peace. You can always find peace in what you do as long as that aligns with that purpose. And uh, all these other things about kind of trying to prove something or to someone else. It, it doesn't matter because you know why you did what you did and you know why you're here. So doesn't yeah. everything else doesn't really matter. And the whole deep rooted thing with that, they've got a deep, they're a deep rooted tree. So, <laughs> so they depth over width. Yeah. Their, their tree goes deep down, taps deep down to the reservoir below as opposed to one that kind of shallow and then. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Learn a lot about us from them. Pardon? We can learn a lot about us from oh, them. Oh heck yeah! Yeah. We um, when I was in architecture school, actually funny funny story. So, um, yeah, I studied architecture, and that's shout out to Bianca. She she actually got me on. Um, just like you should head up Daya. You know Bianca. You oh yeah. 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 I went to uni with her in um, Perth. Oh my gosh! And um, she's at the moment with Annie, the in girl that I Iceland with the breath thing. They said one in the oceans, one. Oh, in the is ocean. that her? Yeah. Yeah, I saw her in uh, one of her videos on Instagram story because she's there uh, in Iceland doing that orca, and orcas are my favorite animal. Um, so the message I was like, oh, I can't wait to see your videos. I'm jealous. Yeah. Anyways, when I was in architecture school, half I've always I've always um, loved animals and the environment, and um, like always since I was a young kid. And in architecture school, it was kind of I was like, I don't know if this is right for me doing this whole architecture build environment thing. And I was halfway through, I was contemplating dropping out and doing wildlife filmmaking, and. Um, there was Otago University in New Zealand. I did, did research into their course. Apparently, it was pretty good. I was that close to dropping out and doing that um, because I wanted a career that was associated in some way with animals and um, having a positive impact. And wildlife filmmaking was the only thing that I could kind of um, was the only career that I was aware of through. David Attenborough and all those docos. I was like, okay, that's the only one. But my family and friends convinced me to stick it out with architecture. And now I'm here, 27. Got my birthday in a couple of days. 
nice. kind of <laughs> gone full full circle. So um, I'm no longer passionate about um, the built environment. It's gone to the kind of the natural environment and, and giving that a go, which is kind of tricky to do, especially after you've invested all this time and money into a university degree and um, kind of at the end of it being like, I'm going to try something else, especially if that thing is conservation. It's like, what the heck are you doing? Mom's like, like, okay, what are you doing, son? (laughs) Okay, but what are you really doing? No, but no, you carry on. I'll say the thing after. So, yeah, that is that is funny that um, I've kind of gone through that process and. Despite that, I'm reverting back to what I, my gut feeling was at the beginning and trusting mm-hmm. that gut. And, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting how that kind of pans out. I think people should trust their gut more. Yeah. We're, we're, also- we live in a day and age where we, we can, yeah. reverting back to what I was saying before, like we, yeah. we, we can um, live a more tailor-made lifestyle if we choose to and, and put in the in, in the effort and work and that kind of stuff. Mm. It, it's interesting though, because when we're talking about solutions and what we can do and what's powerful, even your knowledge of architecture will have a benefit for getting a message across. Like to think that a fashion brand, a television program, Lacoste t-shirts when they change the logo to endangered um, species like all the the more ways that you can combine subjects together the more powerful the spread of the message will be it will hit more people so I think never see like the those studies as a time that's unrelated because everything is related like even the way that you'd be able to tap into and like it's not about preaching to the converted it's about getting the people that may not have thought about it before, mm-hmm. not only like thinking about it, but that they care that they can relate. So, yeah, I think that's a good thing to remember. Yeah, and I, I definitely don't um, regret my that process. Um, the I think what drew me to architecture in the first place was I've always loved to think. I've, I've always been in my bit of a daydreamer in, in that sense, <laughs> and. Um, and architecture was one where you, you're thinking a lot. You're thinking about an idea, thinking about a concept, and then developing that concept. And that's, I, I guess, a skill that is transferable to anything. If you can um, think of a, if you can learn how to think about a concept and develop it, mm. everything in the world begins with a an idea and a concept. So. That's the biggest takeaway that I got from architecture was kind of going through that that process and learning how I personally think of a concept and how I personally would develop that given my personal skill set. Yeah. So that's was the takeaway. But I, I mentioned that architecture thing because in architecture, man, one of my projects was uh, I was designing some. What was it? it was like a a apartment restaurant office hybrid building or whatever and uh, i used um those biomimicry you know biomimicry yeah and it was on the um uh leaf cutter leaf cutter ants 
<laughs> and how, the whole process of how they bring in the leaves and then, um, you know, that kind of breaks down and feeds the fungus or whatever, creates fungus, and then that, yeah. the, their larvae eat on that fungus. But it's like a symbiotic relationship with everything and it's all interconnected. But yeah, biomimicry and the idea of learning from nature is, yeah, it's, it's really important because Mother Nature has been engineering for millions and millions of years. And um, mm. to think that we can engineer a, a better product in a, one generation is kind of a bit ridiculous. We yeah. should look to someone that's been doing it for far longer than we have. Seems to make sense to me. Yeah, that's a really good point. It was spoken about in this podcast. I wish I could remember the name of the podcast. It's a Goop podcast, and it was about... Uh, I can't remember. It was such a good... It was called Shifting from... You know what? I'm just going to find it quickly. <laughs> it was really fantastic talking about curiosity and looking at nature and oh, how to move from consumer to citizen. Consumer to citizen. It's good. It's, it talks a, it's a good one. Okay, this is officially my longest podcast so far. <laughs> just be, just beat my um, last record of an hour <laughs> and 44. Maybe they just get longer and longer. Yeah, well, they're, they're pretty long. <laughs> we kind of, the last one when I spoke to Angelo about painter dogs, um, yeah, we just go, we just yarn, yarn back and forth and, yeah. It's great. Well, there's always a lot to talk about, and it's good because usually, if I'll be like with friends, somehow I always manage to get the conversation back on orangutans, and it's probably become <laughs> slightly boring—not boring, but like predictable. Oh, day not of orangutans again, and I am. So yeah. you know, this is a great moment. I've been able to talk again about mm. orangutans. It's fantastic, and discuss it, and talk about solutions, and not just the, the, the sort of worrying times but mm. what we can actually do together mm. so the, we're probably going to be chatting for a couple more minutes longer but um an interesting point that my previous guest was saying how if we speak for this long obviously i'm interested and there's a handful of people that'd be interested but having creating or curating a piece of content in a way um or packaging a piece of content in a way that um, the general public would be likely to consume. So one thing I'm trying to do is the whole, the condensed IGTV recap video, which is, <laughs> I go through this podcast, so I'm recording the video as well. And I'm um, breaking that down into a nine by 16 format video on IGTV, breaking down kind of like cool sections throughout the podcast with captions and titles and a little progress bar at the bottom but trying to deliver it in a way that um, people consume currently so my i believe in um trying to what we're trying to do i believe is a, a good message we're trying to tell a good story but that's only one part of the equation the, the second part of the equation is to distribute that 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 message to the world otherwise you know the story won't be heard and everyone's um, at the moment is their attention's on their phone. So you need to kind of come up with a content plan that um, will enable you 
for your, will enable your story to be put in front of the eyes and ears of everyone else out in the world. And at the moment, it's on the phone. So I'm trying to experiment with how I can curate this content in a way that people would actually consume it because everyone's got a short attention span these days. And if you don't grab their attention, even to the point of a thumbnail, yeah. you could have the best you could have the best story in the world. You could make the best film in the world. But if you don't have an eye-catching thumbnail on your Instagram grid thumbnail or your YouTube thumbnail, they're not going to click it. I know. And these things all need to be considered and it's like a whole nother dimension, but it's, I would argue, is one of the most critical parts at the moment is, I'd go as far as, far to say that with conservation is, you need to create a bloody good clickable thumbnail yeah or else you're not going to do anything and that doesn't sound natural but unfortunately it's like in my opinion critical yeah. to the day and age that we're living in at the moment uh, which is part of all the things that i'm trying to figure out with online and social media and yeah going a bit mm. of a bit of a rant on that one well, it was interesting. I, I would just say on that, when I was doing the volunteering with Action for Conservation, we looked at a series of videos and conservation clips, some longer than others. And um, the one that unanimously was the most popular with these 12 to 16 year olds was a one minute, uh, like, uh, not animation, but just like illustrations, simple illustrations of George Monbiot talking about rewilding. One minute, just very simple, not too sort of doom and gloom but also not overly optimistic it just laid out the facts if we do this this will happen done like mm -hmm. that is it and it wasn't busy it was just so clear and i think that's you're exactly right you're tapping into it it's a fast you know people look at things on the bus they don't sit down and really have time to if it doesn't catch your attention now it won't and they'll switch to something else so it's about tapping into different audiences in different ways and using social media for for positive ways that it can be used and in, in connecting people across the world and in a matter of seconds um, rather than focusing on it, its bad traits which it, it does have it definitely does have yeah um, but bad traits or or not it's the reality of the consumer at the moment so we need a um, kind of almost present it to them in a way that they, mm. they want to consume it. Even as to, as far as to say like the videos, like a vertical video versus a horizontal video, that makes a big difference Yeah. in itself. Like the idea that we're on our phones, a phone is a vertical screen, therefore a vertical video will take up more real estate on that screen. Therefore, they're more likely to engage with it because when as they're scrolling, it's going to stay on the screen for a longer period of time. Those things blow my mind because, um, yeah, a good message, a good story it needs to be backed up with um, the nuances of the platform that you're posting on and that kind of stuff and the audience specific to that platform. Yeah, it's crazy. There's a lot of nuances to consider, I feel like, in, in terms of creating content and um, delivering content. 
in order yeah. to sway someone's opinion. Um, yeah, all important things. Okay, so finish off on the last question. Okay. Okay, which is the, oh, you touched on that one, didn't you? The what makes the ringtone special to you? Yeah. You touched on that, yeah. Okay, so I think we might be done. Wow. Well, we should go for an extra three and a half minutes because so it can just be two hours. (laughs) (laughs) A few things that people do want to know anymore. I I created a film last year back at the place. It's the most beautiful place I've ever, ever been in my whole life. I don't think I'll ever be. I mean, there are beautiful places, but this hands down, it's unforgettable. And I was able to make a film with the Orangutan Foundation International uh, that showcased like a crazy relationship between a man and an orangutan, a male orangutan. Those big ones that we were talking about before. Um, and yeah, if anyone did want to watch that, that's on YouTube and Mio, but YouTube is probably easier. Um, which I'm sure, like, well, it's called The Lost Person of the Forest, and you can find it that way. Um, and otherwise, all the other incredible documentaries that are out are ones to watch. Uh, and if anyone did have any questions, they can always pass them on to you and pass them on to me because, as I said, I can carry on talking and discussing if there's anything that you know that you want to share. Like, I'm always wanting to learn more. Mm-hmm. So to get in touch, I would urge people, mm-hmm. keep the conversation going. Definitely, especially when we can so easily contact one another. These days, there's, there's really no excuse um, not to try at least. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you. Thank you very much for <laughs> your time, for your two hours. Um, thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Um, it's been really great. Yeah, so thank you very much for that. And, um, yeah, best of luck with your, your film and your poem. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Are we- Recording that tomorrow, so I'll share that. Yeah, yeah. Look forward to it's it. okay. It might be awful. It could be. No, I've, you know what? At the end of the day, so I was saying it. Just um, do it. Yesterday, I was saying this to my boyfriend. Um, even if everyone thinks it's rubbish, I think it's nice. So no, I don't think it's nice. I think it's. I think it's great, and that's all that matters when you create something. <laughs> yeah, who cares what people think? What you're doing is something that's positive and good for the world. And as long as you can remind yourself of that, then everything else doesn't really matter. Yeah. Just like the orangutan. <laughs> um, and um, have, like I'd love to catch up again in, in the future yes. for maybe another chat and... An update. Yeah. Um, do you know of... Cause you're obviously involved with the space and... Do you know of anyone that would potentially be would love to chat about issues like not necessarily orangutans but related people or linked to or just just other people like um yeah, yourself like and myself that um a lot of people i feel like i could send you a list of a few people that would be really interesting to have on board to provide different insights and experience and stories and things so maybe i could I can message, message their yeah. handles. For yeah, message me the, the handles. Um, yeah, definitely. I'll, I'll reach out I, to I them know. because I want to try and um, this whole idea with the conservation tribe is 
is to try and build a tribe of people um, that are working towards the same goal. And um, it's not purely just researchers and scientists, it's everyone that is wanting yeah. to contribute. So artists, um, even, even um, I think you're doing podcasts with um, a bloke in America who's, who started a, um, he's like myself, I, I'm an architect, I'm not a zoologist or biologist, I just love mm. animals. But he's in a similar boat and his side hustle is he started a Instagram page dedicated to raising awareness for the pangolin. pangolin. Yeah. And even just that idea, like I think that's really important. It's To me, it's kind of like a, a mini conservation mm. organization. It's one that's dedicated, it's lightweight and it's, yeah. uh, it's lightweight and it's fast as opposed to the traditional charity where it's, it's obviously doing great work, but it's, it's harder to establish. It's yeah. heavy and it's um, it's heavy and it's like it's slower it's, it's slower because it's it's doing important like massive stuff. But a Instagram page where it's the the entry is easy, just create a, an account and you can actually do work. So I want to chat to him about why he started that and hopefully inspire other people to to get on board and, and start a page dedicated to a topic that they're passionate about and um, um, yeah, raising awareness, but then also trying to mitigate the, the fake news because that's another issue. But that's another topic is trying <laughs> to figure out how we can avoid fake news and yeah. establishing reliable sources for, for information. But yes, <laughs> we've made it past two hours. So thank you again. And, um, <laughs> for having me thank you and i will um maybe i'll create a dropbox share folder with you and, and the audio and the videos and whatnot i can chuck on there and um moving forward if we want to send each other stuff we've got to share dropbox folder so we great could idea do that. cool yeah, that's a idea yay we'll have a lovely rest of your day i don't know what time it is i feel like it's the morning no it's 2 20 in the afternoon yeah. And you're a whole day ahead of me. That's always weird. Yeah, I'm ahead you're, of you. So bizarre. Oh, so weird. Yeah. You're Thursday, right? Huh? You're on Thursday. Thursday. Yes, Thursday. Yeah, you're I'm, Wednesday I'm, night. <laughs> oh, it's so weird. Yeah, it's, it's one thing I'm definitely like. The time zone difference with us is actually pretty decent, but some of them it's like really tricky. So it's my, because I don't have a good lighting set up or, Whatever, I, I try and do it so that I'm recording my daytime so I get sunlight. Yeah. But sometimes it's really tricky to do that um, with people's time zones and it's, it's literally my daytime's 3 a.m. or whatever. So, oh so it's tricky. Oh, my gosh. We make yeah. it work. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's really great. Really great chatting. And I'll message you probably tomorrow with the contact details of other people. That could mm. be good. Totally. Okay. Thank you. And nice, nice meeting you virtually. Yeah, you too. <laughs> and um, yeah, best luck with everything and I'll chat to you later. Okay. Bye. Right. Bye.